One of the great ironies of the career of James Addison Rivas is that he wasn't entirely wrong in some of his ideas. Don't get me wrong, the greatest of swindlers and conmen didn't have a legitimate claim to the territory he said he did, nor was he married to anyone who was even close to being a baroness. But what I mean to say is that during all of his schemes, Rivas tapped into the zeitgeist of his age, especially that part that wanted to civilize and advance the West. As I mentioned during our series on the self-proclaimed Baron of Arizona, over the course of his second stab of getting his claim recognized, Rivas actually hired rail engineers and other experts to work for his fake companies. And they weren't idle. They were actually out there doing real work because they didn't know they were underlings for a huge swindler cheat and fraud. One of the more interesting things to come out of that situation was a suggestion about how to develop Rivas's claims once the ownership question had been settled. Taking a look at some of the biggest issues affecting the Salt River Valley, those engineers and experts tried to tackle the issue of water and proposed a solution. There was a spot some distance upstream, right where Tonto Creek flowed into the Salt River, that would be perfect for a dam. Though he would be hardly the first person to think about building a dam on the Salt River, Rivas and his men were at least a little bit ahead of the curve in identifying the best place to impound and then harness the river. Though he would collapse along with his carefully stacked house of cards soon enough, I can't help but imagine that Rivas took some small satisfaction in the fact that before he died, everyone in central Arizona had taken at least that one idea and ran with it. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 162, The National Reclamation Act of 1902. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you all enjoyed the holidays and have started out the new year in the finest of styles. Now that the festivities are behind us, it's time to once again pick up our narrative and see where it leads. It's been a couple of weeks, so to briefly recap, we last talked about the state of the Gila River and the Ocumel Odom and Maricopa, starting in the distant misty past and leading up to the 1890s. And long story short, that is, what I spent nearly two whole episodes on, these tribes had their water rights usurped by American settlements occurring upstream on the Gila in places like Florence, Thatcher, and Safford. And though Indian agents and others were quick to point out the problem that the Amerindians could no longer feed themselves, no one wanted to enact the obvious solution, that is, kicking all those Americans off the Gila. At the same time, the idea of reclamation irrigating and watering the West to pave the way for farming was starting to build up steam. When the federal government eventually jumped into the game at the turn of the 20th century, everyone just sort of assumed that reclamation projects in Arizona would be for the benefit of those poor, starving Pima and Maricopa who were obviously in a bad way. However, before that assumption became reality, another contender suddenly popped out of nowhere and, when reclamation started, 
it was on the salt and not the Gila. So we now have to turn our attention northward to see what the sometimes soaked and sometimes parched people living in Phoenix and Tempe were up to. Okay, obviously the Salt River Valley hadn't come out of nowhere. Everyone had agreed for years that some sort of water control was needed on the unpredictable salt. Much like its sister river to the south, the salt was plagued with irregular cycles of drought and flood. We've already seen how much damage one of those floods, that is the one in February 1891, could cause. And if you think back to episode 134, after talking about the devastation of that flood, I mentioned that in the following years, the valley was struck with less than normal rainfall. As I also said in that episode, the solution on everyone's mind was dams, dams, and more dams to bring the river under control and help make central Arizona a more enticing place to settle. The only question really was that of location. But that was settled soon enough too. As previously mentioned in the opening to this episode, engineers working for Revis had already figured out a likely spot where a dam could work. Then in 1889, the Phoenix Chamber of Commerce formally asked the Maricopa Board of Supervisors to send a team to look for an appropriate spot to build a proposed dam. This team was led by the county surveyor, one W.M. Breckenridge, who was assisted by two men, John Norton and one of our oldest and dearest friends here at the podcast, James H. McClintock. And I swear, one day I'm going to devote a whole episode to James H. McClintock because not only did he participate in a lot of the growth of Phoenix in the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, and beyond, but he also wrote a whole history of the state that I have drawn upon since our very first episode. I don't know when I'm going to slip that into the narrative, but just know that it is coming. McClintock puts into his recollections that the whole reason Breckenridge was sent out during the summer of 1889 was because there were rumors that a U.S. Senate subcommittee on irrigation was going to be touring Arizona that fall specifically to look for good reservoir sites. So, to be ahead of the curve, Maricopa County and the city of Phoenix wanted to be able to point to a place on the map and tell this subcommittee, there, that's where you need to build. This is still Arizona during the summer, so McClintock hardly needs to tell us that it was hot, laborious work as they moved up the drainage of the Salt and Verde rivers. He also says that several good sites were found that could be discussed in the future, but in the end, there was one place that stood apart from the rest. And by now, we all know where that is. 70 miles upstream from Phoenix, where Tonto Creek flowed into the Salt, was a winged-shaped double valley headed off by a narrow canyon of hard rock. The rock would make for perfect building material, the canyon made a natural bottleneck point for the dam, and the valley was broad enough to store the requisite amount of water for the growing Valley of the Sun. Nearly a decade later, USGS engineer Arthur Davis would declare, quote, it would probably be impossible to find anywhere in the arid region a storage project in which all conditions are as favorable as this one. End quote. So when that subcommittee finally came to town a couple months later, the county and city were indeed able to point to a certain spot on the map and say, there, 
That's where you need to build. However, the dam that everyone envisioned wouldn't be built for another 22 years. Why the delay? Well, this is where I need to introduce a few issues and start tying some of our episodes together. First off, the federal government was still kind of hands-off when it came to reclamation projects. Remember that five years after Breckenridge's expedition, they passed the Kerry Act, which left projects to the states, who were supposed to work with private companies to make these sort of dreams a reality. And Arizona actually tried things out this way. A couple years after Breckenridge and his party had made their recommendation, a man named Wells Hendershot came to Phoenix. Characterized by McClintock as a lawyer and a promoter, Hendershot learned about the suggested dam site and it set off a light bulb. Heading back east to find investors, he founded the Hudson Reservoir and Canal Company, which claimed the Tonto Creek Dam site either in 1893 or 1895, depending on which source you're using. In addition to the obvious benefit of establishing a large reservoir of water, the New York-based company also had other ideas to improve central Arizona. It managed to secure right-of-way to build a canal across the Pima Reservation into the Casa Grande Valley, with the understanding that it would provide water to the hydration-strapped Amerindians living along it. McClintock says it also eyed opening up development on the lands east of Mesa, also by means of a canal taken from the salt at some point above its junction with the Verde. I also love that he points out that the idea was hardly original because, quote, it had been conceived by the arch-schemer Revis, end quote. However, this company was doomed to failure as it learned the harsh lesson that reclamation in the West was simply too expensive for private capital alone. McClintock says that Hendershot was able to secure considerable funding from prominent New York lawyers in some hypnotic manner, but eventually this was not enough. The $3 million price tag for its proposed 225-foot-high masonry dam and vast canal system was simply too much and the fledgling company went under. A second issue was that the farmers in the Salt River Valley themselves had to be persuaded to accept federal help. Many wanted the territory or the county to take the lead in reclamation, and these went so far as to form the Old Settlers Protective Association in 1898, out of concerns that those pushing reclamation forward were concerned only with increasing farmable lands and not protecting established water rights. In fairness, there was a dedicated group who were interested in federal dollars. I mean, in 1896, Phoenix would host the 5th National Irrigation Congress, where many august citizens, such as the not-yet-killed-in-Cuba Bucky O'Neill, spoke passionately for the need of a federal reclamation policy. And the third issue was competition from farmers and Amerindians to the south along the Gila River. The National Irrigation Association formed in Chicago in 1893 to help further the cause of reclamation, but at first met with limited success. They backed the Cary Act, which we've seen was not that great, so they went looking for a moral cause, some poster child they could point to and say, see, this is why we need dams. And they had their perfect poster child on the Pima Reservation. Quickly seizing on the reports of the Indian agents in Arizona, 
the National Irrigation Association turned the plight of the Akmel Odom and Maricopa into a cause célèbre, and soon articles about conditions on the reservation were running in newspapers across the country. On June 18, 1900, the Chicago Tribune famously ran a story with the headline, Indians Starving to Death, 6,000 Perishing on the Gila Reservation in Arizona Because of Failure of Crops. This is one of the reasons everyone assumed the first dam would be on the Gila for the relief of the poor Amerindians, and it was on the mind of Congress when it began its debates over the National Reclamation Act. So, all these factors divided national attention enough that, even as a decade went by, still no actual practical steps for building a dam at the selected site had been started. Karen L. Smith, writing in the journal Arizona and the West in 1981, points out that by the turn of the 20th century, building dams on the Salt and Gila Rivers were accepted goals and anticipated events for people living in central Arizona. This anticipation was also helped along by a bad drought that started hitting in the summer of 1898, underscoring the need for the dams. But the real question was how to finance these operations and who would get there first. In this race, the Salt River Valley brought in something of a ringer in the form of a lobbyist named Benjamin Fowler. Fowler was a native of Massachusetts who had attended Yale and had been in the book publishing business in Boston, New York, and Chicago. However, in 1899, he had moved out to Arizona and bought a farm near Glendale in a bid to shore up his flagging health. Once out west, Fowler stepped into the water debate, becoming president of the Arizona Agricultural Association, a member of the Territorial Legislature, and chairman of the Salt River Valley Water Storage Committee. This committee had been formed in 1900 by farmers and irrigators to untangle the problem of water rights and distribution and was now working with the also recently formed Maricopa County Board of Water Storage Commissioners to possibly finance the building of a dam solely through the use of county bonds. However, due to Arizona's territorial status, congressional approval was needed to ensure the bond stability, so Fowler would be sent to Washington, D.C. as a lobbyist, something we'll get to in just a second. Because before we move forward, I should mention that Fowler also became good friends with Frank Newell, who was the hydrologist for the United States Geological Survey that I mentioned last episode, who had studied building dams in central Arizona. Oh, and Newell's about to become the chief hydrographer for the USGS, so his practical experience charting rivers and drainages in central Arizona is about to carry a ton of weight. Fowler would also meet and befriend George Maxwell, the head of the National Irrigation Association. Together, Newell and Maxwell were the strongest advocates for reclamation in the entire country, often beating that drum in meetings held across the U.S. They had actually met at the 5th Irrigation Congress held in Phoenix and had developed a vision for what reclamation could look like. For Maxwell in particular, the dream was for irrigation to basically decentralize the country's population away from urban areas, potentially solving many social ills in the process. Newell would later go so far as to say that the campaign for reclamation could be dated from the time of their first meeting. 
Soon Fowler fell into lockstep with these two, and it was off to the races. With some lobbying experience, Fowler would spend most of 1900 and 1901 in Washington, D.C., where he received much support from Maxwell, who also relocated there, renting the house right next door to Newell's. There he would host evening sessions at his house, and Maxwell, Newell, Fowler, and the nation's chief forester would often have lunches and dinners together, talking about irrigation the entire time. What this group realized was that if they really wanted to get Congress interested, they had to put some skin in the game themselves. So Fowler offered $1,500 in matching funds from the storage committee he represented to the USGS to continue doing irrigation surveys along the Salt River. Both the USGS and Secretary of the Interior were tickled by the offer, so the surveying continued. And unfortunately, it's about here that the wheels came off the bus for the Pima Reservation's push to get their dam first. The first problem was that federal policy toward Amerindians when it came to irrigation was haphazard and by no means clear, much like all federal policy toward Amerindians. Basically, a generation's worth of Indian agents had tried to turn all Amerindian tribes into farmers, and the government was willing to buy loads of seeds and farming implements, but it never gave much consideration to making sure they had enough water. There was some hope when the government spent $3,500 to survey the Pima Reservation, which we talked about at the end of our last episode, where that engineer proposed building a dam at the Buttes. But here we run into another problem, the so-called gospel of efficiency that underlay the technocratic and bureaucratic thought of the time. To put it as simply as I can, and as far as I understand it, bureaucrats like Newell were against waste in any shape or form. As we mentioned, the obvious solution was just to give the Akamel Odom and the Maricopa their water rights back. But that Alexandrian solution to the Gordian knot that was water along the Gila rubbed Newell the wrong way. While admitting that the government had done nothing to protect the rights of the Amerindians along the river, he argued that by now those rights had effectively changed hands. So now it would be an injustice to take the water rights away from the American settlers who had been on their land for a generation, and without which their land would be worthless. While you can argue the bigger, more pressing injustice was the theft of water from the Amerindians, Newell does have something of a point if you phrase it differently. Basically, okay, what do we do with all the other settlers? But because I can't defend him too much, I have to also mention that turning perfectly good water from canals back into a sandy river channel where much would be lost to seepage and evaporation also set off Newell's mental waste alarms. The argument here is that for each acre of land cultivated by the Amerindians downstream, it meant releasing enough water to cultivate several acres upstream. Or as Newell so insensitively put it, quote, Several acres well tilled by white men would be destroyed for the benefit of one acre poorly worked by the Indians. End quote. Ouch. Other ideas, including artisan wells, pumping stations, and a diversion canal from the Hudson Reservoir and Canal Company's proposed dam, 
were all put forward as alternatives, though these two were not efficient enough for Newell and his ever-so-efficient comrades. There was a tinge of hope in 1898 when Congress did earmark $20,000 for the USGS investigation of two potential dam sites on the Gila that we talked about last week, at Queen Creek and the Buttes. However, the legislation that appropriated this money also managed to ensure not to raise anyone's hopes too high when it said, quote, Nothing herein shall be construed as in any way committing the United States to the construction of said dam, end quote. It's probably good that they added that caveat in there because, well, dams at those two sites would never be built. I mentioned last time that the Queen Creek site was too small to contain adequate water capacity, something that this most recent USGS report again noted. But it also found that the bedrock at the Butte site was unsuitable for the construction of a masonry dam. Instead, the report focused its attention at a site upstream of these two, at a place called San Carlos. This is where the Coolidge Dam and the San Carlos Reservoir stand today, but as the name of the dam suggests, it's going to take a lot more time before anyone starts building anything. The USGS report concluded that it would take roughly $1 million to build the dam, which would hold 241,000 acre-feet of water and irrigate Pima land, as well as 100,000 acres of public and private land. Unfortunately, the San Carlos site was found toward the time that the initial $20,000 funding was running out, so no detailed study of the bedrock, streamflow, or silting was carried out at that time. Here's where we run into the last great problem that was holding reclamation along the Gila back. The proposed dam site on the Salt River had seven men, including Fowler and Maxwell, who were in Washington actively lobbying for it. In contrast, the San Carlos site had one guy. The pastor of the Florence Presbyterian Church, Isaac T. Whitmore, traveled to Washington, D.C. in December 1899 to support proposed legislation to fund construction of the dam. However, the poor pastor found the work of lobbying hard in an uphill battle, especially after a senator on the Committee of Indian Affairs came out against it. When the matter finally came up for debate on the Senate floor more than a year later in January 1901, the conversation steered more into national irrigation policy. Basically, many of the senators felt uncomfortable signing off on a singular reclamation project without having a general policy in place. The practical side of me actually really agrees with this idea, but I still can't help but feel bad for yet another delay in getting water to the Ocamel Odom and the Maricopa. And though Newell himself was solidly in favor of the project, in the end, the objections, including the $1 million price tag, was too much to overcome. But one of the objections raised was about to be settled. Francis G. Newlands, a representative from Nevada, introduced a bill in February 1901 to solve the issue of how the government would fund irrigation projects. This bill contained two elements designed to put the national reclamation movement on sure footing. 
First, it removed the money question from the hands of the states and private enterprises by creating a fund overseen by the Secretary of the Interior that was fed by the sale of public lands. Secondly, the Secretary of the Interior was given final and total discretion when it came to the selection of projects, what criteria needed to be met, and the final size. However, this apparent rejection of states' rights in favor of total government direction, from a cabinet officer and not an elected official no less, and an economic fear from eastern farmers about competition from their western counterparts, all conspired to make sure this bill was defeated shortly after being introduced. The good news is, though, that the bill was only mostly dead, not all dead. One of the big things to ensure the bill's resurrection was the ascension of Theodore Roosevelt to the presidency after the assassination of William McKinley in September 1901. As you are probably well aware, Roosevelt was a conservationist at heart and had a keen interest in reclamation. And it didn't hurt either that he was personal friends with Maxwell from the National Irrigation Association. According to McClintock's accounting, after obtaining the highest office in the land, Roosevelt gathered a group of scientists and congressmen interested in reclamation and declared that he wanted to put into his first message to Congress a call for passing a national irrigation law. So Newland's bill was revived and put through the fight in Congress again. And this time, Maxwell, Newell, Fowler, and others agreed to a compromise to help assuage enough concerns to actually get the thing passed. This included an important amendment, namely that private lands, in addition to public lands, could receive water from the federal projects that would be created. Phoenix boosters in particular have lobbied hard for this exact thing, mainly because most of the land in the Salt River Valley, which would definitely benefit from a new dam, was already in private hands. But while being naked self-interest, they made a pretty sound argument to Congress. That is, the ultimate goal of reclamation was to put homes and farms onto the land, no matter if it was public or private, so allowing the water to flow on private lands was working toward the goal no less than only putting it on public land. And this helped mollify just enough congressmen that this time the bill wouldn't fail. The Newlands Reclamation Act, or sometimes the National Reclamation Act, was passed on June 17, 1902, which also so happened to be the anniversary of the Battle of Bunker Hill, for those of you who were thinking that I hadn't put in quite enough minutiae into this episode. The bill itself called for the selling of public land to fund reclamation projects in 16 western states and or territories. Arizona, California, Colorado, Idaho, Kansas, Montana, Nebraska, Nevada, New Mexico, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Oregon, South Dakota, Utah, Washington, and Wyoming. McClintock says that at the time there was more or less an assumption that each state and or territory would get back in reclamation project dollars roughly what it had put into the kitty. However, he writes, this didn't really hold true in Arizona, as the territory definitely got more than what was strictly its fair share, partly because half of a future irrigation project along the Colorado River at Yuma was charged to California. 
Another consequence of the bill was the establishment of the Reclamation Service, part of the USGS, to help with all the projects that were to be coming down the pipe soon. And wouldn't you know it, Newell just so happened to be named the Chief Engineer of the Reclamation Service. Okay, with apologies for this episode winding up shorter than our normal fare, I want to pull up on the reins here, right after the passage of the National Reclamation Act. I'm stopping short because next week I want to move into the political maneuverings that happened before the ink on the bill was even dry. Now that Phoenix was sure to benefit from these federally funded projects, Fowler and others went to work to ensure that they would be some of the first to do so. And in the process, they would leave the Amerindians down on the Pima Reservation high and quite literally dry. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.